anymore, except, you know, maybe you have like a, a great grandma Myrtle or, or something like that. It's one of those names that you, you don't really associate with like five-year-olds anymore. Um, maybe it sounds like that old uh, Dr. Seuss, Yurtle the Turtle book. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like, like a, This is the Lord's declaration. This is 
chapter 55, verse 8. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. As my thoughts than your thoughts. And he goes on to say, And he goes on to say that ultimately, in verse 12, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and hills will break into singing before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. So, Years before we find our story here in Esther, God's word to his people through the prophet Isaiah has mentioned this myrtle tree. And myrtle trees were very abundant in Persia. So here are two people, a couple. And they're in Persia as exiles. They've been exiled along with everyone they know. All their ancestors have been taken away from Jerusalem in 597 with the rest of the upper class of Jerusalem. And they've been taken away to Persia. Well, they've been taken away to Babylon, and now Babylon has been taken over by Persia. So they're in Persia as exiles, and the people that took them over have been taken over. They've got next to no right to say anything about what goes on in this country. And they're wondering, is there still hope for us as God's people? And they have this child in a foreign land. And they're wondering, maybe, what's going to happen to this child? Is there hope for our future? generations? Is God going to come back and be with his people? Is he going to work for his people? Is he going to be involved in the lives of his people? And they see these trees and maybe they're reminded of the fact that there is hope someday. And they see that they have this beautiful girl who reminds them of these beautiful myrtle trees that they see everywhere and reminds them of maybe there is hope. So let's call her Hadassah. But as we come to Esther chapter 2, we find that at least for her parents, that doesn't last long. They don't see the hope. Because we see that Esther's mother and father are dead. So now you have a girl born in a foreign land who's now an orphan. The hopes that she would have are much like the hopes that the nation of Israel have at this time. circumstances this way? Have we been forgotten? Is God around? All types of, of questions would be surrounding the Jewish people in this situation and we'll see in Esther those brought together in this one story. So, in the meantime, Right, we had chapter one ends, and King Ahasuerus has banished his queen. And now we come to chapter two, and it's four years later. And it says that King Ahasuerus remembers what Vashti did and what was done to her. He doesn't remember, interestingly, why she did what she did. 
Because she wouldn't have done anything if he hadn't been like, yeah, come parade around here in front of all my drunk friends and all of the people in the kingdom. He doesn't remember that part. He doesn't like, oh, maybe I made a bad decision. Man. Remember, Vashti said no to me. That stinks. God, Miss Vashti. And, and there's, there's a, a good reason for him to, to want to feel in control. Because during these four years that have passed, a lot has happened to Ahasuerus and the Persian Empire. So in chapter 1, the reason they were in Susa was probably because King Ahasuerus went to Susa to plan his next military endeavor, which was to get revenge on the Greeks um, who had defeated his father Darius a few years before. And so how many of you have heard, maybe you saw the movie, I actually haven't, but maybe you saw the movie 300, or heard the story. Alright, so that happens to King Ahasuerus, this king that we're talking about in these four years. He decides, okay, we have to go get the Greeks because they beat my dad, Darius. And so he sends, depending on the historian, some Greek historians say like five million people, which is probably an exaggeration, but they vastly outnumbered the Greeks. Persian Persia was the largest empire in the world at this time. So Xerxes is like, okay, I can't control my own house, but I'm going to go get revenge on the Greeks, and I'm going to proclaim my dominance to the world. And so he sends basically everything he's got at Greece. And Battle of 300 happens, and his troops are wiped out. And his navy gets wiped out. And then the rest of the soldiers get wiped out, and he is utterly defeated. At one point, he's trying to figure out how to get um, through the Middle East and through Turkey over to Greece. And so he gets to these straits, and he says, all right, we're going to build this, this bridge so our, our soldiers can get across. And it's going to be great, and it's going to be massive. And they get it built, and you know what happens? A huge storm comes, knocks the whole thing down before anybody can get across. And Hachimaris, as we know, he's got a temper, right? So he's... So he gets all the engineers that built the bridge and chops off all their heads. And, and then he orders other soldiers, because he's really mad at the water too. And he says, go out and whip the water 300 times for being bad. Like, you're like, okay. I don't know if this is going to work, but he just cut off these dudes' heads, so I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whip real hard, right? And, and, he, and he has... He has other soldiers throw handcuffs on the water and then has them stab the water with iron-hot spears. Like, this dude is unhinged, right? This is the guy, he's, he's so frustrated with everything. And he comes back and he's like, man, war didn't go well, and now I'm back here in, in Susa, in my winter palace. Man, I remember being here. This is where Vashti is. I also kind of miss her, right? What's going on? I mean, what should I do? And again, like, he still hasn't had his own idea in this thing, right? His, his, the only idea that, that Ahasuerus has had so far is when he was drunk and wanted to call his wife. Afterwards, he got his advisors to tell him what to do. And now we see again, he's like, well, what should I do? And his, his young advisors say, well, I don't want to be a dip. I mean, you're the king of all kings in the world right now. Like, nobody can really say no to you. And if they do, you can just, you know, do a bash you. So, what if, since no one can say no, we went through all the land and we selected everyone that anyone thought was beautiful. All the women who have not yet been married or known a man, and we bring them to the kingdom. And you, Ahasuerus, you can decide from all of them who you want to be your queen. However, however they please you, we'll let you decide. And if you're somebody in power, like we have people in power right now in 
this kind of government that we have that take advantage of the power that they have, right? Imagine if they, if any of them, if if one of us had that much power, how how easy it would be for Ezra's to be like, of course I agree, of course I can do that. How could a godlike king like me not deserve all this? How could I not take advantage of that? And so the call goes out throughout the kingdom. And hundreds of girls are rounded up from around the Persian Empire and brought to the fortress at Susa. And it's in this context that we find girl, Hadassah. We find out that she doesn't have her parents anymore, that they're gone. And that her uncle, Mordecai, has basically adopted her and taken her in and, and raised her as his own daughter. So we don't, we don't know at what year exactly Esther's parents passed away. Um, but because of where the story has us find Esther as uh, a young woman who is, who is brought to the temple, I mean the temple, to uh, the citadel, we, we know that probably for much of her formative years, Mordecai was the one who was around. And so we see Mordecai only has one name. Now, it doesn't tell us why or if he ever had a more Hebrew name. But Mordecai is basically the Hebrew transliteration of a common Babylonian name, Marduka, which is after the god Marduk. And so it doesn't say by his name whether that means that he's necessarily worshiping Right? For, for many, many of us, we know people that, maybe, maybe some in our family, they came to America, and they went through, say, Ellis Island, and somebody at Ellis Island was like, no, that name's too hard, I'm going to make it sound more American. Or he came here and, and said, okay, well, I need to have an English name too, so I guess I'll go by Christian. That's a nice, you know, Christian name, right? Um... That, that's a situation that maybe Mordecai finds himself in here and says whether it was he, he used to have a Hebrew name too and no longer goes by it, or his parents maybe didn't have the same kind of hope when they were naming him as Hadassah's parents did. For whatever reason, he's just Mordecai. And we, and we learn that he is a, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, the the line that King Saul was a part of. But it does not seem we learn a lot about what is going on with his faith here. It seems much like God that his faith is hidden. And so it's these influences that are coming in to the life of Esther. So she has an uncle who's raising her, who is probably encouraging her not to use Hadassah. But to, to go by Esther, he is in the capital area. And as we, as we look through the chapter, we see that he is able to, to freely go to different parts. And so... This isn't somebody that is on the outs with society, but somebody that knows how to get things done, knows how to talk, how to walk, how to live like a Persian in order to get by. He's maybe decided that 
and we have been here a long time and we aren't hearing from God, maybe that's not really something that's even on his mind. Maybe maybe the captivity and oppression and the, the distance that his family sensed from being away from the land of Israel, away from the temple which was demolished, has beaten them down. And his faith is beaten down and dormant. And so in that setting, what, what is he gonna have to give of spiritual upbringing. He's going to be able to show her how to be wise in terms of the ways of the palace and the ways of the Persian government, as we're going to see. So she's got this uncle who seems to have more than one foot in the Persian culture and not very much of a foot at all his Hebrew heritage, who's struggling with assimilation to the Persian culture. And on top of all of this, Esther gets swept up into this, what the palace calls a contest. But for all of the families that it involved, it sure probably didn't feel like a contest at all. Especially for those in provinces far from Susa, where someone comes to your door and says, we noticed your daughter is the most beautiful in the town. We know she's not married yet. We know she has a bed with a man. We are taking her to the king. It's not even hidden kidnapping. It's not sex trafficking behind the scenes. Coming straight to your door, saying, I know you can't do a thing about this. We're taking away your family. We're taking away your future, any hope you had of having a regular life is done. And we see them taken and put under the protection of Haggai at the harem. And all these girls from all over the kingdom are put in the same You imagine being in that position. You've been ripped away from everyone you know. I don't know how much of it was explained to them, but I'm sure it doesn't take long to figure out that, man, you've got one chance. Those of you that um, have ever dated in your life and like know like the awkwardness that can be the first date, and that's when you're like trying to do things right, like you actually call the person and like, hey, let's get coffee or whatever it is. You didn't like kidnap them, there's no that kind of pressure. It's just like how awkward it can be, like, man, I don't know. What if what if I mess this up? This person looks really good on paper. I saw I saw their profile online and maybe maybe they gave a match. I don't know. Or I saw them across the room and they, they seemed like, man, they were just like the life of that conversation. And I don't know if I could keep up with them. And, Man, now I just throw ketchup on myself at the table, and this is going all wrong. Like, that's enough pressure as it is, right? But now they've been told, you've got all this time to prepare. You've got one chance. You've got one chance in the midst of all these girls, in the midst of the millions of people that were looked at to be selected to come here. That one chance was wrong. 
You're going to be stuck in here forever. You're not going to be able to leave. The king's probably not going to call for you again. You're not going to be able to marry and have a family. You probably will never see yours again. Whether you even hear news of them delivered to the capital someday later, you don't know. with all these people who have also been taken from their homes and their lives. And so, sure, you would, there's, do I befriend them? Do I commiserate with them? But at the same time, there's, well, yeah, if I, I help her, but what if she goes into the king before me and the king really likes her? And there's all kinds of pressure swirling here. And that is where Esther is placed. And in the midst of this, Mordecai says, hey, make sure you don't let anybody know about your ethnicity. Don't let anybody know that you're Jewish. He doesn't say why. Maybe, maybe Mordecai was afraid that the king wouldn't choose somebody who wasn't fully Persian or Maybe he was afraid there were other people in the process that were out, would be out to get Esther if they knew she was Jewish, or um, many reasons that there could have been. For whatever the reasons are, he tells her to be silent about this issue. And, and we see that, that she does this. It's repeated twice in the chapter that she's to make sure that nobody knows. And we, we live in a neighborhood where we have an easy illustration. Right? If you walk down certain streets just a couple blocks from here, you're going to see a lot of people that distinctly by the way they dress, the way they walk, and all of that, you'll know. Oh, they're from this set. Judaism. They stick out, right? You can't help but notice the coat or the hat or whatever it is. So here we have some Jewish people living in Persia. And we know if they were following the Old Testament, what kind of things would they be having to do? Like, oh, well, God said I can't eat this kind of stuff. God said I can't wear those kind of clothes because they got like three different fabrics in it. And God said like we have to wear like one fabric in the garment. So sorry, I can't buy this. Um, sorry, I, I, I can't I can't walk with you today that far because it's the Sabbath and we're not supposed to be doing work. Like it would it wouldn't be hard if Mordecai was raising Esther to be diligent about keeping the law for people to find out that they were Jewish. One little slip-up would, would be all that it would take. Esther gets to the harem and as they're bringing out the food to one dish, like, oh, well, that has, I guess as Stephen would probably say, shrimp in it, right? That has shrimp and I can't have it. Why is that? Um, well, definitely not because I'm Jewish. Um, it's totally for, yeah, allergies. Have you guys heard of allergies? I don't think anybody has yet, but allergies are a thing. You'll want to be on the lookout for those. Right? It, it wouldn't take much for her to do something if she's following the law for someone to say, well, wait, you're definitely Jewish. Like, I've heard a little bit about the Jewish law, and that totally sticks out. So, what we can probably gather from this, that it was that easy for her to just be like, oh yeah, I'm just Persian, just like anybody else, is probably that at this point in the story, as she learned from Mordecai, that it was more important to fall in line with what Persia was doing 
then to fall in line with what God had asked his people to do in the past. And so we find Esther in the harem. And we see that she takes the advice of Mordecai, who they said, I don't, I don't know what to say about him here. He's like, yeah, just go and here's some advice for how to do well in the competition. I don't know. Right? For those of you that, that have children, would that be your advice to your kids if you were the parent in that situation, if you were the, the guardian in Mordecai's case, to say, oh yeah, join this competition to see if you are going to be the most sexually appealing one to the king. Would there be another way? Would there be a way to stand up to when you probably feel no one can stand up to me as you were? But there doesn't seem to be any thought of doing anything else other than the Persian king said this, Here's how you can do well. In the midst of that, Mordecai luckily happens to know Haggai, who is the keeper of all of the girls of this contest. And so he tells Esther, all right, Haggai works for the king he, he runs a lot of the stuff in the arrow. He knows what the king likes. Right? Because if you are serving somebody who will behead a bunch of people if a storm causes their bridge to collapse, then you're going to make sure you know what the king wants. Because if you send him in someone, a couple someones in a row, and he's like, why are you sending me these kind of people? You can be gone pretty quick. So Mordecai knows, like, no, this guy has a good job and he's not being killed. So Hajiwaris probably thinks he does a good job of meeting his needs when it comes to things associated with the Arab. So, so stay close to him and, and, and that'll help you somehow. I don't know if it'll help you win, but it'll probably keep you at least on the good side of the Arab. And we see that, that Esther finds favor with Haggai. It's like, wow, she's, she's pretty great. She's got real potential. And so he moves up all the timeline in terms of when he was going to give her more, uh, more beauty treatments and, and a better diet. And that's the other thing, right? The, the diet. Like, this isn't an example like, like the story of Daniel, like the very beginning of the exile, where Daniel and his friends, they're taken into Babylon, and with all the other um, young people of the ruling classes, they try to assimilate them into Babylonian life, and they're put before these feasts, and, and Daniel's friends say, well, this isn't in line with what God has told us we can eat, the way the food is prepared and what it is, and so we can't do this. Would you give us other food to eat? That's not, that's not something that we see Esther struggling with. It. That she just gets the beauty treatment, she gets the diet that is going to make her look the way that the king wants his queen to look. In some sense, what choice does she have? This is how she's been raised. How much if she never really owned her faith yet, how much blame do you have for coming into this situation and doing what she feels she has to do? And we see, one by one, over the court, after their year-long preparation, to make sure that, you know, they, 
they take whatever they, the parts of these girls, I guess they didn't like how they looked, and they got enough time to get them, you know, their, their skin looking nice and whatever, you know. It's a lot, a lot. So anybody's ever going to complain, like, oh man, my, my date or my wife or my girlfriend, they take too long to get ready. Like, they're not taking a year, so I guess be patient, right? Um, but so, and, may, and maybe part of this is to make sure that none of the women that have been brought here that have, that they've been told are virgins are pregnant. Because what if, one of, what if she gets there, and she actually was, but she sleeps with the king early on, and then she has a baby. Now she's got some control of the king, and the king doesn't want that, right? He's only got eunuchs around him. He doesn't even let the guys around him that are advising him have their own like descendants, he's not letting anybody else get in there. And so we have this year of preparation, and and one by one, they're allowed to take whatever they want, whatever they think is going to work, whatever they think might get them an advantage and, and make the king look at them differently than everyone else in the room. And one by one, they go into the king. They make their attempts. And they come back and are sent back to the harem. Most likely never be heard of outside of the people of the harem again. And in the midst of this, each day, Mordecai is coming by. She finds favor in his eyes as well. And so the king immediately stops everything. Like, I don't need to see anybody else. This is over. Like, sorry to all the people that are still in the back wall. I'll never get to you. I found a queen. And so. Because of this connection, Mordecai is around even more. He's able to be more a part of what's going on in the in the capital. And one day he he overhears some gossip and some rumors that a couple of these guys, the king's bodyguards, they've been
and it's very matter of fact in the passage. And then it was recorded. Now, what's interesting is that King Ahasuerus actually was assassinated later in his life. So this, this wasn't just like a, a false alarm kind of thing. This kind of stuff happened a lot back in these kinds of times when if you offed one guy, you could start over. And so he had plots on him, and it was, uh, let's see, this is 79, so like 15 years later, he was actually assassinated. So this was a, a real threat that he sensed, and that Mordecai was able to bring to the king. And so now Mordecai has been written in the records of the king Ahasuerus as being a good and loyal and trustworthy citizen. And that's something that you want to keep in mind for later. But we've gone just at the be from the beginning of this chapter of Esther having next to nothing. And now she's in a place of honor. We've seen very what one might call fortunate circumstances. The Mordecai just happens to know the guy that runs the harem. That the guy that runs the harem, who knows exactly what it will take to please the king, sees Esther and is like, wow, she's really great. And that he takes special care of her in the midst of all of these hundreds of women. And that she finds favor with the king and that Mordecai is fortunate enough to be able to be of service in finding out this assassination plot. And all of these things are very what we might think of as fortunate. Because Esther, the book, Probably mentioned, doesn't mention God by name. In all of this, as his people, as Mordecai is telling Esther, hide who you are. Because it seems like the way to get by is to be like the world. Even though it seems that God is hidden. You can see his fingerprints through this chapter. And you can see as we as we go through the book, as we explore further in the story, how important these little moments of on the outside might seem to be luck or good circumstance really are. And so we see that in the midst of everything, even when God seems hidden, he is there. And he is beginning to work his purpose, even among people that are far from him. Even among people that are afraid to associate.
when everything seems to be going wrong, God is still for his people. God keeps his promise. And so maybe, maybe we find ourselves in situations where we're struggling to know if God is there. We're struggling to feel like God is present. Maybe what's going on in our world, in our society, we're, we're wondering, does it really, would it make more sense for me to follow X, Y, or Z to get ahead in this society? Would it make more sense to not tell people early on or ever if they don't have what my faith is. is. Is that something that that I could keep a secret anyway? If I was in that position, um, it currently, somebody said, all right, well, just don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Is that something that I could pull off? Is that something that if somebody right now said, oh, that person, oh yeah, they're a Christian, and people would be like, like their, their parents were Christians or something, or they knew a Christian, or they walked by a church once, or why do you think they're a Christian? Is that you? Or the people around you do they know by the way you live that there's something different about you? That you're not just conforming to the way of the world. That in the midst of everything, all the outside forces that are telling everyone's society to go one way, that you're willing to identify you different. And if you're struggling to see God at work, as we go through Esther, read again and again and try and find all the things that, man, if one different thing would have happened here, the whole story falls apart. The whole story. Any one of these all of these things are going to be needed to make everything come together later in the story. And sometimes we can only be looking for a big sign, a big miracle, something that is obviously very spiritual to know that God is working. Know that even if you're not seeing that right now, even if you're in a dry part of life, that God is moving and that God is faithful to his people. And keep looking because he's there. He is not hidden. This is one of those things where you really want to tell how you can see that I think you're going to struggle every week to be like, and then at the end, no. There's, there's tension in this. Just like there's, there's tension for Mordecai and Esther. There's tension for us. This isn't just a, oh, and then everything works out right away. <laughs> there's growth for us to, to wrestle along as Esther and Mordecai are going to wrestle along with do we identify as Persians? Do I, do I identify as an Israelite? That's something for us to wrestle through as well. To know that God keeps his He, what he has promised to us, 
just as what he promised Israel was sure. And that in the, the midst of this foreign land when nothing seems to be going right, the buds on the myrtle tree are beginning to bloom. And we begin to see God at work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious, that you are so loving, that you are so patient. God, that even we, as your people, when we struggle, when we wrestle with how to live for you in a world that is made not to live for you right now, God, that you are there, that you are working, and that you are with us. God, we pray that you would help us as a family, as individuals, to sense your presence, to sense where you are moving, to sense that you are not far from us, but that you are near, even when it doesn't feel like it. God, we pray that you would help us to see that is our identity in Christ so that we can own that identity above every other one that would tempt us. God, so that we could be a light here in Crown Heights and abroad. to those like Esther who have not. And we thank you that you are our